Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. Uh, 916-633-1537, ratchetandratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, and today we have a absolute hood classic. Like, maybe the book that started it all off. Um, Donald Goings is legendary uh in in urban fiction um and in i think just fiction literature as a whole i don't think he gets the respect that he deserves but um yeah he he started this gangster shit honestly uh if you really look back it would be him and maybe iceberg slim at the same time, and I know Sonny Carson had, uh, um, the hell was his book called? I don't know. It was an autobiography. Sonny Carson had, um, the education of Sonny Carson that came out in 72. And, uh, Claude Brown had, uh, Man, Child, and the Promised Land, which was one of my favorite books. And then as I got older, uh, my mom made me read, um, uh, Makes Me Want to Holler by Nathan McCall, which I still feel like 95% of that book is made the fuck up. But it's like when you make your own biography and you publish it, ain't nobody there. To, Who gonna check me, boo? You know what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, motherfuckers write on the very first page, I was born with a 12-inch dick. Who gonna check me, boo? That's what I felt about Nathan McCall's shit. Like, his shit was real coincidental. We'll we'll maybe get to his somewhere along the line. Because, yeah. Um, but Donald Goings? Yeah. This dude was wild. Let me see. He uh, grew up. He was a career criminal and drug addict who uh, took up writing during one of his seven prison sentences. From 1969 through 1974, he published 16 novels, which are now recognized as blood-soaked and almost unbearably authentic portraits of the roughest aspects of the black experience. He was murdered. He got shot. He also uh, picked up a lot of his stuff from Iceberg Slim, so I guess Iceberg is the one who really started this gangster shit. But... I can tell you right now, I have no fucking clue how I came across Horror Son. <laughs> to, to be honest with you, it might have been my mama. My mom had a lot of books that I wasn't supposed to read when I was growing up. 
light porn, you know, those romance novels about turgid penises and shit like that, uh, 70s uh, graphic uh, books where folks are either getting beat, robbed, or fucked. Some book where a kid was fucking people with his mind, like literally mind-fucking people. If I remember what that shit was called, that shit was off the fucking hook. Ugh, I think that was the first time I ever realized that if I rubbed the pillow enough... Anyway. And, um, Donald Goins' son. And, yeah, I think Horse Hunt stuck with me the most because, as you see, I can't remember the names of the other ones. I wish I could. That one about the mind fucking was just like, that was some wild ass shit. Like, this dude was telepathically fucking people. <laughs> the 70s was a wild ass time for books. I'm going to tell you what. Drugs and books do not go hand in hand. But Horson, yeah, this book's about it. And I actually bought this one because they don't have it on Kindle. Um, and they have it as an audiobook, but why the fuck do I want to do that? And every library in my city, like the entire city, suburbs, the whole nine yards, they're all checked out. When books like this are checked out, they ain't coming back. Folks ain't scared of no overdues. Well, the, 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 the library ain't sending no cops after people. So these books don't come back. You find these books when people move out of houses in the middle of the night because the rent's due the next day. It's not funny. It's just the way it is. So with that said, Ratchet Book Club is proud to present Horse Son, The Story of a Ghetto Pimp by Donald Goins. Chapter 1 From what I've been told, it is easy to imagine a cold, bleak day when I was born into this world. It was December 10th, 1940, and the snow had been falling continuously in Detroit all that day. The cars moved slowly up and down Hastings Street, turning the white flakes into slippery slush. Whenever a car stopped in the middle of the street, a prostitute would get out of it or a whore would dart from one of the darkened doorways and get into the car. Jessie, a tall black woman with high, narrow cheekbones, stepped from a tricks car holding her stomach. Her dark, piercing eyes were flashing with anger. She began cursing the driver, using the vilest language imaginable, about his parents and the nature of his birth. The driver, blushing with shame, drove away, leaving her behind in the falling snow. Slush from the spinning tire splattered her as she held onto a parked car for support. She unconsciously rubbed her hand across her face to wipe away the tears that mingled with the snowflakes. Two prostitutes standing across the way in the silver-lined doorway, an old dilapidated bar that catered to hustling girls, watched her curiously. Before she could move... Another car stopped behind her. She turned and stared at the white face leering over the steering wheel. The driver noticed as she turned that her stomach was exceptionally large. Guessing her condition, he drove on. She stood holding her stomach and watching the car move down the street until it stopped near a group of women in front of a bar. 
She started to move towards the sidewalk, but her legs gave out on her, and she fell into the slush in the street. From the darkened doorways, prostitutes of various complexions ran to the stricken woman's aid. Before, where there had been closed windows, there now appeared heads of different shapes and sizes. Bring that crazy whore up here, a stout woman yelled from a second story window. While four women half carried and half dragged Jessie up the stairs, a young girl, still in her teens, yelled to the woman in the window, I think she gonna have that damn baby, big mama. The large woman in the window looked down at the girl, amused. It's about time she had a gal, seeing she'd been sticking out for a whole year. Big Mama started to close the window, then added, You run down the street and get that nigger doctor, gal, and don't stop for no tricks. The young girl started off for the doctor, muttering under her breath. She ducked her head and pulled up her collar in an attempt to cut off the chilling wind. When a car stopped and the driver blew his horn, she ignored the call for business and continued on her errand. Big Mama's living room was full of prostitutes sitting and standing around, gossiping. It was rare for a woman to have a baby on the streets. Also, it gave them an excuse to come in from out the snow. The hell Jessie working out in this kind of weather for? Ain't she and her man saved no money? A short, brown-skinned, dimpled woman asked. The room became quiet until another woman spoke up. You know goddamn well that black-ass bath she had for a pimp run off last week with some white whore, she said harshly. He jumped on Jesse and took all the money she'd been saving to get in the hospital, too. This comment started up gossip on the merit of various pimps. Then suddenly a slap and the sound of a baby yelling came to him, and everyone became silent. Big Mama put out the few girls who remained in the bedroom, then took the baby from the doctor and carried it towards the bed. Her large face was aglow with happiness as she smiled at the woman laying in her bed. You can be glad of one thing, Jessie. This baby don't belong to that nigger of yours is gone, she said while turning the baby around so the mother could see it. Looks like you done went and got you a trick, baby, honey. But for a child as black as you, I sure don't see how you got one this light. Jessie raised herself and stared at the bundle Big Mama held. Oh my God, she cried and then fell back onto the bed. Big Mama stepped back from the bed, shocked, and held the baby tighter. Her dark face, just a shade lighter than Jessie's, was filled with concern. She had never had a child of her own. Like many women who have been denied offspring, she had an overwhelming love for children. Her voice took on a tone that all the prostitutes working out of her house respected. When she spoke this way, they listened, perhaps because she weighed over 300 pounds and was known to knock down men with one swing of her huge hands. She spoke, and only her voice could be heard in the house. If you don't want this baby, Jesse, I'll take him. Her eyes were full of tears as she looked down at the tiny bundle in her arms. You can damn well bet he'll have good taken care of, too. The small, elderly, balding doctor cleared his throat. He held out a birth certificate. I'll have to get on to my other calls, so please give me a name for the little fat fellow. <laughs> little fat fucker is what we would have called him in the 2000s. That's how we do. You know what I'm saying? Jesse stared at the bundle Big Mama held. All the black curls covering the baby's head only inflamed her anger. 
Her eyes were filled with a blind rage as she turned and stared at the doctor. He stepped back unconsciously. Here, he thought, was a woman who had been badly misused by some man. He hoped that he would never again see so much hate in a woman's eyes. Jesse laughed suddenly. A cold, nerve-tingling sound. Big Mama shivered with fear. Not for herself, but for the tiny light she held in her arms. Well, Mrs. Jones, the doctor inquired, have you decided on what to call your baby? Of course, Doc. I got just the name for the little son of a bitch. Horson. Horson Jones. The doctor looked as if he had been struck by lightning. His mouth gaped and he stared at her dumbfounded. Big Mama was the first to recover. You can't do that, Jesse. Give the child a good Christian name. Christian name hell, Jesse replied sharply. I'm naming my son just what he is. I'm a whore and he's my son. If he grows up ashamed of me, the hell with him. That's what I want to name him and that's what's going to be. Whore son. I don't know why he got to be a Jones though. Like you could have made him whore son Jenkins or something like that. Like niggas always got to be Joneses around here now. Like you're going to have somebody named Shitbag Jones or something like that. Why can't his name be Horson Williams, W.W., Horson Williams Franklin, W.W.F.? Chapter 2 The slum I grew up in seemed to me to be the most wonderful place in the world. My early childhood was pleasant, and it was a rare occasion when I saw something in the store that my mother couldn't buy me. Jessie saw to it that I always had money for the candy store. Whenever I lost some marbles she had previously bought, she quickly gave me money to buy some more. Most of us kids loved the backyards and alleys that we played in with our slingshots made out of discarded tire tubes. We overturned garbage cans in hopes of startling a good-sized rat so we could shoot at it with our homemade slingshots. Between the alley cats, dogs, and us, we kept the alleys, yards, and run-down bars clear of rats during summer daylight hours. When night fell, it was the other side of the coin. The rats came out in full force, and many children were bitten because they slept out on the porch to beat the evening heat. We lived in the upper flat on the second floor. Besides my mother and me, there was a big tomcat that we just called Cat, who shared the flat with us. Before Jessie would go to work at night, she always managed to run Cat down and toss him in my bed with me. For me to mention sleeping out on the front porch at night was taboo, so I would play with Cat in my large bed until I fell asleep. I didn't know it at the time, but she did it because of her fear of rats. After tucking me into the bed, she would ruffle my hair and kiss me on the cheek. Well, little pimp, I gotta go and catch him now. You be good and I'll let you count the trap money in the morning, she'd say before turning out the light and leaving me on my own until she came back sometime in the morning. On a few occasions, she didn't get back in the morning. When this occurred, one of my mother's girlfriends would be up in the bed with me when I woke up. When this happened, I'd know that Jesse wouldn't be home till later that day, so I would go downstairs and have my breakfast. The woman who lived under us had a bunch of children, so one more mouth didn't make much difference. When we played in the backyard, the boys next door would call them the welfare's pride and joy. If I laughed too much, the little girls who stayed under me would remark, 
Ain't no sense in you laughing, fool, because your mammy ain't nothing but a whore. I look at them and grin. You the fool, girl. You and your sisters and your mammy need to get off welfare and become whores. This will cause all the kids in the yard to laugh, and I join in with them. At the age of five, it's pretty hard for a child to understand the meaning of whore. If my mother wasn't home after I ate lunch, I'd wait until the woman upstairs woke up, and then she'd take me over to Big Mama's to stay. This made me think I was the most fortunate boy in the world. Instead of one mother, I had two. Big Mama and Jesse. With the passing of summer, my small world began to change. A big event in my life was my first trip to the neighborhood barbershop. Jesse dressed me with care. She had me put on my new suit and shoes and then marched me out of the house. She had always cut my hair at home, but since I was going to start school in the fall, she decided to have it done at the barbershop. The men sitting around the place stared at us when we entered. I didn't care. The barbershop was a foreign place to me. I stared around in wonder. The tall chairs with men sitting in them getting their hair combed. The glittering mirrors that surrounded the walls. All of this was a new world for me. The loud music from the jukebox made my feet sway with the beat as I danced alongside Jessie, keeping up. She seemed unconcerned as she walked me up to an empty chair. She spoke to a short, fat, balding barber. I want you to cut it off the back real good, but don't take much off the top. The barber sighed. Why is it, girl? Every time one of you bring in a red nigger, you always say just cut a little off. But when you bring in a black boy, you want it all cut off. Jesse stared at him coldly. Nigger, all you got to do is look at your head in the mirror and then look at his hair. But that ain't here nor there. I ain't got nothing to do with how you do with some little black boy's hair. What I'm worried about is how you cut my little red nigger's hair. So you pay heed, nigger. This red one's mine, and you'll cut it like I say. She rolled on her heel and stalked out. The men lounging in the shop laughed loudly. One heavy voiced man roared over the noise. I bet you cut that boy's hair right, Lou. Lou seemed to take it as a joke. He smiled, displaying a row of yellow stained teeth. That's just what I was telling you boys the other day. A nigga couldn't give me, you know. So, I'm stopping right there. This book was made in uh, 1972. Hatred of black women was already very in vogue amongst black men. Yeah. I'm going to read this book as it is. As you know, that's what we do. Of course, the nigga with the stained teeth is the one who's saying this shit, though. That's just what I was telling you boys the other day. A nigga couldn't give me no black woman. They is the most meanest woman God ever put breath in. He continued. You damn near got to be crazy to fight with Jesse anyway. She fights like a man. Another bystander spoke up. Shit, man. Consider yourself lucky if she fights and don't do no cutting. That black girl there is sure enough mean with a razor. The barber rubbed my head the way Jesse did sometimes before he started to trim my hair. After he finished my haircut, he bought me a pop and set me on top of the shoe shine stand. I wonder where your ma went, he asked offhandedly. One of the idle bystanders spoke up. She probably caught a trick, Lou. 
Lou shook his head for the man to remain silent, but the man continued. Hell, Lou. Don't you never think that boy don't know what his mom do? Ask him what his name is. I know what his name is, Lou answered. I was too young to understand the pity the man had for me, but his kindness was understood. Jessie came through the door, walking as though the world belonged to her. Her high-heeled shoes rang louder than the taps on my heels as she took that long stride of hers. She stopped and swayed, her hands on her hips. Every eye in the barbershop was on this tall black woman who carried herself with such pride. Well, Lou, I guess I won't have to make you knock down one of these walls trying to get out of here this time. Lou grinned. I'm sure glad you ain't going to do me no harm, Jess. I sure started to cut a little bit more off the top, though. You damn near got this boy looking like a girl with all this hair on his head. Jesse reached up and removed me from the shoe shine stand. She picked me up with the same ease as Lou had shown. I'm glad you didn't, Lou, she said. I know how I want my pimp's hair to look, and this is the only pimp I got. With a vigorous shove, Jesse started me towards the door. I ran out of the shop into the street I love so well. There wasn't much difference between the daylight business and the night business on Hastings. The street was full of slow-moving cars, the drivers more interested in the colored prostitutes in the doorways and on the traffic moving in front of them. I waved at the various girls I knew standing in the gangways. Some of them yelled across the street at me, Look at whore, son! Any sharp today? Jesse caught up with me. You take your fast ass home and get out of them clothes. I crossed the street on my way home, and one of the girls came out of the doorway and caught me. She gave me a hug, then pressed a quarter into my hand. Let that boy go on home. Y'all ain't doing nothing but spoiling him, Jesse yelled. I grinned, kissed the girl on the cheek, and went home. Chapter 3 My first days in school were uneventful except for the shock my first name had for my teachers. Of course, they quickly solved this problem by simply using my last name. However, this didn't stop my classmates from calling me Horson on all occasions, causing my teachers to curse my mother's choice of names. At this stage in life, school was wonderful. On the way to school, we used to steal from the delivery trucks making their morning stops. On a few occasions, some prostitute who was still up working, or was just coming out, would yell at me, I'm telling your mammy on you, boy, if you steal that junk. I don't know if they ever told, but if they did, Jesse never said anything about it. Because the whores always yelled at me, it made me popular with my gang. They commented on the fact that all the prostitutes on Hastings knew me. My best friend Tony, he put his arm around my shoulder. His mother sometimes worked with Jesse, so we spent a lot of time together. Me and you, Horson, he would say. We're going to be the best pimps in the whole goddamn world. I would look at Tony's dark face and grin. He was taller than me, and I was tall for my age. Tony could outrun, plus outfight anybody in our gang except Ape. Everybody knew couldn't nobody whip Ape. He was big, dumb, and strong. There was a lot of grown men who wouldn't tangle with Ape. We always waited on the corner in the mornings for everybody in our gang before going on to school. If somebody wasn't going, there was always some kid in the gang who knew about it. Tony would stop by for me, 
and then we'd stop and get Abe. That way, everybody came to the corner with somebody. After nine or ten of us got together, we would start for school, looking for something to steal on the way. After my ninth birthday, I began to really understand the meaning of my name. I began to understand just what my mother was doing for a living. There was nothing I could do about it. But even had I been able to, I wouldn't have changed it. There was a boy in our gang named Milton, whose mother wouldn't allow Tony or me in her house. She didn't even really want her son to play with us, but he found it was easier to run with us than to get whipped on his way to school every day. I once heard her yell at him while we were waiting on the sidewalk. Milton, if I catch you giving that junky bitch your son some of your candy, I'll kill you when you get home. That goes for that little half-white nigger they call Horson, too. You hear me, boy? I mean it. Now you can take this quarter and save some change for school. It had been Tony's idea that Milton try and get some money so we could buy some candy. After Milton bought the candy, Tony wouldn't eat any. He told Milton to take it home and stick it down his mother's big mouth. I helped Milton eat up the candy. She wasn't the first person who had said something about me, nor did I think she would be the last. To tell the truth, I enjoyed eating it because I knew she didn't want me to have it. Tony seemed so pitiful watching me eat the candy that I suggested we stop at Big Mama's. If she didn't give us any money, she sure had something to eat. I wasn't hungry, but I knew Tony was. It seemed as if his mother never did cook because he was always hungry. Milton started to complain. Y'all know I can't go up there horsing. You know, I ate up all my candy. Now you don't want me to be with you. I saw a girl from my class at school going down Hastings Street, and I started to run to catch up with her. Come on if you ain't scared, I yelled back at Milton. Tony ran beside me and laughed at Milton. Come on, punk. You might get a chance to see somebody doing it if you don't be so frightened of what your mother might say. We crossed the street at a dead run, causing the driver to slam on his brakes. He stuck his head out the window and cursed loudly, but it just made us laugh. Janet turned and saw us coming, but before she could get away, I had grabbed her and felt where her tits should have been if she had had any. She called me a nasty thing and tried to hit me, but I danced back out of the way. Tony came up behind her, grabbed her by the ass, and then jumped back. She screamed and slapped out at him, but she was too slow. He joined me and we laughed. We had started on down the street when two whores stepped out of a gangway and caught us from behind. Before we could break loose, Janet had ran up and slapped both of us. Tony tried to kick her, but the woman holding him got mad and slapped him beside the head harder than Janet ever could have. Keep your black ass feet on the ground, little nigga, you hear? She commanded. Tony complied by keeping his feet still. Not one to appear frightened, I resorted to threats. When I catch you in school, Janet, I'ma do more than that. Janet shook her little skinny hips at me. You ain't gonna do nothing, nigga, but try and get along with me, she answered. I tried to get free, but the woman held me tighter. You just wait and see, I yelled. First time I catch you in school, I'ma stick it in your little tight puss. Okay. Both of the women who had seized us laughed. The one holding Tony remarked gaily, Just listen to them. Ain't neither of them got enough to stick it in a pop bottle. I turned bright red, blushing down to my toes. Tony was on the case, though, and he capped sharply. 
We got enough to bust your big wide ass open woman. Instead of making him angry, his remark only amused him. Then suddenly we heard a voice roar from the window above us. Big Mama was leaning out the window. Bring them little fresh niggas up here. I'm going to see how long it's going to be before they fill on another girl in the streets. On hearing the sound of Big Mama's voice, plus seeing that look in her eye, we really tried to get free. It was useless though because after she finished speaking, some more girls helped the first two carry us upstairs. When we got upstairs, Big Mama bore down on us. Both of us were shaking so bad we couldn't get our lives straight. I tried to explain that we weren't feeling Janet, just playing with her. For telling this lie, I got a well-placed slap. After that, the women got together and took our pants off. A white man coming out the back bedroom stopped and gave Big Mama his belt. Why the fuck? She ain't giving you a discount for doing that? Nigga, don't help. She took his belt and lit us up with it. Fuck you, white man. <laughs> Fuck you forever. If I see you in the street. She took the belt and lit us up with it. After we had begged, cried, and pleaded, Pless called her grandma. She gave us our pants back and sent us into the kitchen to eat. See, white people who are listening to the show. Hi, how you doing? Um, when black folks get their ass whooped, or when we used to get our ass whooped, the way that the parents will make up for whooping your ass half to death is by doing one of three things. They either cook something for you, or they would ask you if you wanted a Slurpee, or they would say, stop crying, or I'm going to give you something to cry about, and I'll go outside and play at 9 o'clock at night. After eating some ham hocks and greens, we tried to beg some money out of Big Mama. She promised us another beating if we didn't get out of her sight, so we ran down the stairs. The long, narrow stairway was dimly lit, so we didn't see the two women who had grabbed us until we got to the bottom. They stood in the dilapidated doorway laughing at us. Tony asked the one who had grabbed them to give up a quarter. She gave him a personal invitation to go to hell, so I tried another approach. I promised the one who had caught me a kiss if she would give up the coin. She stared at me for a moment. Give me one good reason why I should want to kiss you, she said, and I'll give you a quarter. I stared straight into her eyes and stated, Since I'm just a little pimp, all I'm asked for is a quarter. But you know all you whores love to give pimps money, so just give it up, whore. Her mouth flew open and she just stared. I stepped back out of her way. I knew Jessie had told all her girlfriends to pop me upside the head whenever they heard me swear, so I wasn't taking no chances. The sound of men laughing caused me to turn. I saw two men sitting in the Cadillac who I knew had to be real pimps. They were wearing silk suits and their hair was beautifully processed. One of the men called over the girl I'd been talking to. He gave her two dollars and pointed at us. You give it to them, he said. That way they could really got some horror money. She came back from the car and gave Tony his dollar. She held mine in her hand. You owe me something, she said and leaned down. I caught Tony's eye. He nodded towards her breast. I winked at him and stood on my toes. I put my hand with the dollar in it around her neck, then kissed her on the mouth. She stuck her tongue into my mouth. My eyes opened in surprise. Reaching out with my empty hand, I squeezed her left breast. I ducked my head to miss the blow if one was coming before she could move. And Tony moved in behind her fast, sticking his hand high up under her dress as it would go. She screamed as we ran down the street laughing. 
Tony yelled to me. Horson, she ain't got no draws on. People walking down the street stopped and laughed. Big Mama yelled out the window at us, and the pimps in the car roared with laughter. The other prostitute broke out in a run after us, but when we cut into a gangway to lead into an alley, she stopped. After this experience, Tony and I stayed on Hastings. When we were on this street of excitement, everything seemed to happen, and life was full. Perhaps our introduction of vice was premature for our age, but it prepared us well for our chosen profession. My mother tried hard during this period to stop me from hanging around pool rooms and trick houses. Her beatings were useless, though. She even tried using coat hangers twisted together. She called them her pimp sticks and used them only when I had been exceptionally bad. Even if she used coat hangers, I wouldn't stay out the corner. For two or three days after a severe beating, I would stay close to the house. But when you're young and wild, you soon forget the whippings or just try not to get caught next time. Tony had started staying at my house four nights out of a week, so Jessie whipped him as much as she did me. After I turned ten, she began to see that the beatings weren't the answer. She discontinued him, except for when we would sneak out after she went to work. For some reason, she couldn't stand for me to see her working on the streets. At school, our gang had become a terror. We shook down all the kids our age, plus a few of the older ones. We took their lunch money daily until one day we beat up two brothers who rebelled against our extortion. Their mother came back to school with the police. The principal informed the officer that Tony and I were the ringleaders. We denied this, but it didn't do any good. The detectives wouldn't believe our lies, so we ended up being escorted home by them. Tony said we were half-brothers and lived together. I think he told this lie to stop them from going to his house where they might have found narcotics lying around. When the police knocked, Jessie had to get out of her bed to open the door. She just stood there staring at us when the officer pushed us through the door. After listening to the police talk, her eyes began to shoot sparks. We knew there was big trouble ahead. Without answering, Jessie wheeled around and ran to the bedroom. She appeared swinging her coat hangers. Her large breast strained to burst free from the sheer nightgown she wore. In her anger, she hadn't bothered to put on one of her housecoats so the officer could see just about all they desired. They stared with open admiration. Tony was the one she reached first. I was glad of this because I hoped that she would be tired by the time she reached me. As I watched, I began to shiver with fear. She struck with such brutal intensity that I knew Tony wished she had just gone home. I had never seen her like this before. When she released him, he squirmed across the floor in torment. She stood there breathing hard with her hands on her hips. Her eyes seemed wild. Her features were contorted with rage. I tasted fear for the first time in my life. My mouth was dry. My legs trembled. I stared with fear at this dark, angry woman, who I could hardly recognize my mother. When she moved towards me, I jerked back, breaking the policeman's hold on my arm. Before I could maneuver, my progress was halted by Jessie's unyielding grip. It seemed inflexible. No matter how I wiggled, I couldn't break her hold. The pain was inexpressible. The blows landed first on my back and shoulders, and then moved down to my buttocks and legs, then back again. I screamed from sheer pain, mingled with terror. She beat me in such a cold fury, I thought she would kill me. She didn't stop until an officer intervened in my behalf. 
Seething with anger, she stood over me, her eyes blazing. Her voice was harsh and deadly when she spoke. If I ever hear tell of you taking money from any kids, I'll beat you to death. Do you understand, boy? Between the whimpers that escaped from me, I managed to nod my head. I believed in my heart that Jesse meant what she said. Before they left, the officers told Jesse it would be ridiculous to whip us again. They must have thought that after that demonstration they had witnessed, the next beating would kill us. Tony and I laid on the floor side by side. Without speaking about it, we knew our extortion racket had just come to a sorry end. Chapter 4 Winter came and went. With the coming of summer, Tony and I started dressing neatly every day for the first time in our lives. Tony got a job delivering papers so he could have enough money to buy clothes. His mother shot up all the money she made, so he had to get his own. Jesse bought me anything I wanted within reason, so I was just about the best dressed boy in school. One day, just after my 12th birthday, I came home from school and Jesse told me it was time for me to learn my street education. I didn't know what she meant because I thought I had been learning about the streets without her knowing it. How utterly wrong I was. While I was eating, she told me she had to make a run, but she would be right back, so stay home. I waited impatiently until she returned. When she got back, she had a tall, dark man with her. I stared at him curiously. Since I had been born, this is the first man she had ever brought back to the house. When her big mama talked about pimps, she said I was the only pimp Jesse had or wanted. He was the darkest man I had ever seen. Actually, he was blue-black with large red lips. He wore thick, round glasses that made him look like an owl. Jesse introduced me to Fast Black. For the first time in my life, I learned the looks could be deceiving. He began teaching me all the connivance that went into the game. Trickology must be used whenever it was possible to rip it off. Artifice became my bible as I learned how to play stuff. The shell game, pigeon drop, and three card molly. Before I turned 13, I was on my way to becoming a card shark. And with a pair of craps, I was becoming a master. I could knock, shoot the turn down, or pad roll. On sand, dirt, or concrete, it didn't make no difference. Wherever they played, I just about had a shot for it. Fast Black used to tell me I could never claim to be good until I could take a pair of dice and get down in the blanket, then walk the dice from 2 to 12 without missing the sequence. My only problem at this time was the hours of Fast Black had me practice. I spent hour after hour in the front of a mirror, pulling seconds or dealing cards from the bottom of the deck. When I finished with the cards, I'd have to spend two or more hours shooting dice on the bed with the blanket drawn tight. To break the repetition of daily practice, Jesse asked Fast Black to teach Tony how to play. We competed against each other for pennies every day. It wasn't long before we were keeping all the kids at school broke. At lunchtime, you could always find a game going somewhere on the tiny school ground. There was a greasy spoon restaurant across the street from the school. Most of the kids gathered there to play the jukebox. The owner, Fat Sam, liked to watch the young girls dance, so the jukebox kept money in it. After school one day, Tony and I saw a crowd gathered in front of the restaurant. Anticipating a fight, we ran over and joined the crowd. 
Janet, with three of her girlfriends, stood in the middle of the crowd singing. I watched her lead the group. Her small hips swayed with the beat of the tune. I knew right then I was through pulling her hair in the classroom. A police car pulled up and scattered the crowd. I slipped away from Tony and approached Janet. I removed her books from her arms. She turned and stared, astonished. We were too shy to talk much that first day, but after a few days, she began to ask serious questions. What you gonna do, Horson, when you get grown? Pimp, baby. Pimp, I would answer. She would shake her head sadly. Don't you know there's better things in life than that? Why don't you finish school and go on to college? I'm ready for the fast track now, baby. I don't need no college, I replied as cool as possible. She puckered up and tears rolled down her cheeks. I stopped and pulled her into a doorway. Our lips met for the first time. The kiss tasted salty, but it seemed to stop her from crying, so I kissed her again. After a while, she pushed me back from her. She stared up at me seriously. We have to stop seeing each other, Horson, because I'm going to be a big singer someday, while you ain't going to be nothing but a pimp. I stared at her angrily as she continued. My mother says singers go with entertainers or businessmen, while prostitutes go with pimps. I looked at her coldly. My mother told me something, too, I said harshly. When I was three years old and in my mother's arms, she looked down at me and said, Son, the way I'm taking care of you now, when you get old, always have you a woman to take care of you like this. Before she could interrupt, I continued. Furthermore, before my daddy died, he bought me a graveyard so that when I get old enough, I could drive my old Cadillacs there and leave them. I was talking fast now because she had hurt me. She started to walk off, but I grabbed her arm. Before you go, young bitch, I want you to know, you said a pimp ain't nothing, but dig this. All I'm going to do is rest and dress by gasoline and lean. Now you can dig where I'm coming from, young whore, because that's all you is. I'm going to buy diamond rings and have the best of everything. I turned her arm loose. When you get home, tell your mommy for me that I want her to know. When I get old, I'm a pimp whores. With that said, I turned my back on her and walked off. I felt a large lump in my throat, and my eyes were so watery I couldn't call them raindrops. But I didn't cry. I walked tall, proud, because I knew I was going to be a pimp. After I got over the pain of that incident, I started gambling constantly. We were doing so well that Tony quit his job. Our next step was to start skipping school so we can gamble. Soon we were both keeping $50 to $100 in our pocket at all times. Whenever we did go to school, we had our pick of the girls. They fought constantly over us. While this popularity of mine was growing, Janet drifted completely out of my life. One afternoon after we had won all the money on the school ground, we decided to skip the last three periods. After rambling up and down Hastings, we found a crap game going on in the alley. We watched for a while. Most of the players were factory workers. Tony caught my eye. I stepped back so we could talk. They were bouncing a pair of red dice off a barn door, plus there seemed to be a nice amount of money in the game. I knew it was on his mind. We had a set of tea with us, but they were white. Our red set of loaded dice was at the house, and that was a problem. Jesse was at home still sleeping, and we were supposed to be in school. Tony tried to persuade me to slip into the house through a bedroom window. 
I shook my head stubbornly. I wasn't about to go for that. Jessie would kill me if she caught me skipping school. Suddenly, the lookout yelled, Cops. All the guys gambling rushed through the garage door. Tony and I were caught flat-footed. Since we hadn't been gambling, I wasn't worried on that account. My main concern was being taken home by the police. I hadn't forgot the beating I got the last time some police took me home. The two cops piled out of the car as though we had robbed a bank. One of them grabbed Tony and shoved him against the car. Spread your legs, nigger. He growled as he began to search him roughly. He found Tony's small bankroll in the tee. Nigger, you must have been doing pretty good in that crap game. Tony was scared. He answered slowly. Officer? I didn't even know how to play. We were just watching. The officer slapped him across the face, then kicked him until he scrambled into the back seat of the car. The other officer, who had been holding me, spoke up. Boy, what the hell color are you? The question took me by surprise. Color, I answered. He slapped me in the mouth. Get up against that car, you black son of a bitch, you. He yelled angrily. Shaking with rage, I leaned against the back of the car. I felt my small roll of money being removed. When I complained, the other officer jabbed me in the stubble with his nightstick. Bending over, holding my stomach, I began to vomit. Some of the food splashed onto the foot of one of the officers. He cursed angrily. When I finished, he grabbed me by one of my shoulders and pushed me towards the open car door. When I raised my leg to step into the car, pain exploded in my testicles. The floor of the car came up to meet me as I sprawled out on the floor crying. The policeman who had kicked me stuck in his foot and wiped the shoe off on me and then told me to shut up. Tony rubbed the top of my head as if that might take away the pain. The police rode us around for a while. They told us what would happen if they caught us in the alley shooting craps again. They tried to give us the impression that we were just lucky, since all they were going to do was take the money. Not once did they mention school to us. At the time, we were only 13. They finally stopped and put us out. After threatening us again, they pulled off, leaving us about four miles from home with no money. What are we going to do? Walk or catch a cab and jump out and run, Tony asked. I didn't answer for a few moments. I don't see no sense in us going home without no kind of money, Tony. It was Tony's turn for silence now. We walked for about five blocks this way, until Tony stopped in front of a market. I grinned and followed him into the store. In less than ten minutes, we were back out on the street. We both had six steaks apiece. We continued walking until we found a colored beauty shop. At the first booth inside, we pulled out the meat. A heavy-set woman doing hair stared at us closely. Where you get that meat at? She asked loudly. Her fingers were digging into the prime beef. The woman whose hair she was doing picked out four steaks. How much? She asked. Soon the small booth was full of bargaining women. Let me get one of them, another woman yelled. Fifteen minutes later, we were back on the street splitting the money. Nah, man. Let's try that short con Fast Black taught us. I never used it before, and ain't no better time than now to find out if it works. We continued walking until we came to a drugstore. We entered and tried it, but it didn't work. Our next stop was a small grocery store. No luck. The third business we entered was a dime store. 
I decided to try my luck this time, so Tony handed me the $10 bill in one spot. Can I have a pack of camels, please? I held the $10 bill out to the young girl behind the counter. When she returned with my cigarettes and change, she remarked, Aren't you a little young for smoking? For a moment, I ignored her question. Was that a 10, miss? Yes, she replied and raised her eyebrows. I pushed for a dollar and held on to the change she had given me. I'm sorry, miss. That's my father's tin. Would you please take the cigarettes out of this? They're for my mother, and I can't get the money mixed up. Oh, she said, surprised. She took the dollar and went to the cash register. When she came back, she put the tin on the counter. I put the tin spot in my hand with the other money and started counting fast. 10, 15, 16, 19, 20. Just give me a 20 for that change, please. She looked down at the money and then stared at me. My heart skipped a beat. I almost broke and ran. Panic was setting in. If Tony hadn't came to my rescue, I would have run. That other money belongs to my big brother, miss. My, I'm sure going to tell him what a pretty lady they got working in this store. The remark paid off. She picked up the money off the counter and put it at the cash register, returning with a 20. You boys be careful with all this money now, she said, smiling. We showed all of our teeth as we grinned at her on our way out the door. As soon as we hit the sidewalk, we got in the wind. We didn't stop running until we were four blocks away. We ducked into an alley and lit up our cigarettes behind a garbage can. We laughed and smoked and then walked on looking for another opportunity. We found nothing favorable until we came to John R. Street. There we came across two slick old niggas playing three-card molly with four white men. The whites were being trimmed smoothly. I was surprised when Tony asked the man handling the cards if he could make a bet. The old guy tossing the cards looked up. Your money spins, boy, just like theirs. He laughed loudly at his own wit. Tony bet a dollar and lost, and then two more with the same results. I stared at him and wondered if he was losing his mind. We both knew how to toss the boards, but he was better than me. He quit suddenly, turned his back, and walked away. I followed him down the street until he found a drugstore. When he went in, he found the women's section and bought some lipstick. Now I was sure he was going mad. On the way out, he stopped. How much money you got, Horson? When I replied, he stuck out his hand. I stared at him foolishly. Removing the lipstick from his pocket, he smeared a little on his finger. Shell out, man. You ain't got no faith in me? I grinned and pushed my small bankroll into his hand. When we returned to the game, Tony watched the cards go back and forth for a while. Then he bet a dollar and laughed, picked up the other two cards to see where the queen was, put a tiny mark on it and dropped it back on the ground with the other card over it. Old man, you ain't slick, Tony said. I ain't gonna let no old man beat me out of nothing. How much money can I bet? All you can get down with, came the reply. The old man switched the cards back and forth, faster than I could follow. Get your bets down while I'm in town. Money on the wood makes the bets go good, he said while bringing the cards to a halt. Tony made a $35 bet, reached over and turned up the queen. The old hustler swore, but thinking it was pure luck, he paid off. Then, without hesitation, he began to toss the cards again. 
When he stopped, Tony spotted the tiny smear and bet the whole bankroll. He flipped the queen over again. The hustler paid off while his lookout partner searched the back of the cards. I figured Tony had wiped the back of the queen off on that last catch, but I wasn't taking any chances. As I watched the cars coming up the one-way street, as soon as I saw a break in the traffic, I hit Tony's arm. We crossed John R. on the run, turning up into the nearest alley. The hustlers let out a yell behind us, so we knew they must have found part of the mark. The traffic held them up, and by the time they got across the street, we were cutting through backyards on our way to another alley. We bought three cans of reefer for $50 and split the rest of the money. That night, we gave a lawn party in my backyard for all the young kids in the neighborhood. There was plenty of wine, weed, and beer. We had everything at the party but grass to dance on. It's a certain beauty to um, holding a book. Last couple of books I've been reading, well, all the books that I've been reading prior to this were all on my Kindle. So, you know, I'm swiping, but I'm telling you, there's nothing quite like this. The smell of a new book, it's, it's akin to smelling a baby's hair. Just that fresh newness. Nothing like it to me. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Leave a review at podchaser.com. All you got to do is uh, type in Ratchet Book Club. Um, I made a list of uh, literary podcasts. Um, I'm on it, of course. Um, but there's also just a ton of great shows. Um, that are either book club shows or people reading folklore or uh, people just really enjoying books. We got comic book podcasts on there. We have uh, stories to help you get to sleep from Sandman Stories Present. Uh, we have true crime stories by uh, Wine Dine and Storytime. We have classical stories by um, Campfire classics and and Geyser and then we have uh, young adult stories being read by Dustin um, in the Dustin Can Read podcast and there's tons more so check that out if you're looking for more book club books to get down with or book club podcasts to get down with and while you're there leave a review uh, for my show you can also leave a review on Apple wherever just let me know where you leave it at Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'll holler at you later. Y'all be good. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.